Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator and the editor of its US edition. We thought that 2020 was going to be all about the presidential election, but now it will forever be the year of the pandemic. So instead, Americano is going to look at how COVID-19 is transforming the United States and its politics. There's a lot to talk about, perhaps even more so than before. So please keep tuning in. I'm joined by Peter Wood, who is president of the National Association of Scholars. And we're going to be asking, why is America so angry? Now, Peter, back in 2007, you wrote a book called A Bee in the Mouth, Anger in America Now. And it was about how anger has become a very powerful and ugly force in American life. And I wonder, looking at the riots that we're seeing at the moment, uh, the burning of American cities whether you think that uh, your thesis was right then, but even more true now. Yes, I do. I I think that Americans have, uh, since the 1960s, valued anger as a form of authentic self-expression, more important than self-control, and more effective in causing other people to behave in manners that you're seeking than almost any other form of persuasion. Anger was not always that. It has been traditionally viewed in the West as a a rather dangerous thing and something that mature adults attempted to instill in their children a sense of danger to it. That's not that we can ever be without anger, but uh, to treat anger as though it is a uh, a rewarding experience and one that should be sought after uh, is a relatively new thing given the longer arcs of cultural and societal history. It's not so new that we're experiencing it as though for the first time here, the riots that have uh, descended on so many American cities uh, have a quality of gleefulness to them. Those who are expressing anger uh, attempt to put that in a, a pose of uh, righteous indignation. And there's some of that for sure. But uh, righteous indignation tends to be, I think, more and more a mask for uh, a very high level of self-approbation. Look at me. I'm mad. Uh, look what this my anger entitles me to do, which is to destroy property and threaten people. I, th- I think you put it back to the 1960s, perhaps, and to the sort of the the birth of mass psychology, perhaps the 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 idea, or earlier than that, perhaps the idea that bottling up anger was seen as something harmful, and in England we call it the stiff upper lip or whatever. That 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 is sort of repressive and therefore bad, and so expressing your anger is therefore good, and that became commonly accepted, perhaps, in the 60s, even if it came earlier than that. Yes, I believe it did come earlier than that. The uh, Freudian psychology that treats anger repressed as the cause of neurosis had been in the stew for 50 years or so. It really came into prominence in American life at the very end of the 1940s and early 1950s, not as a mass phenomenon, but as something that the intellectual elite was introducing and people were getting the idea. So it took about a decade or so for that to break out of rarefied circles and become the common sense of Americans. Oh, no, uh, 
you don't want me to bottle up my anger, that would make me sick. It is interesting how often the language of health and wellness is uh, part of this outburst of anger right now. That is, uh, words are seen as uh, a form of violence and danger and imperiling people's mental health. And uh, in light of all that, we, we need to get angry and stay angry. But don't, don't we know now that the more often you express your anger, the more often you'll be angry? It's not, it's not actually psychologically helpful to, to be angry. Not at all. Uh, habituating ourselves to anger is like getting habituated to a drug. People get used to it. They want more of it. And they fail to learn or they unlearn whatever lessons they once had about the importance of self-control. We once elevated as cultural heroes, people who faced with aggravating circumstances, uh, which would make one angry, nonetheless master their anger in order to behave in a, a civil fashion. I made a, a deal in my book about George Washington, our first president, who was notorious for having a really terrible temper, but even more beloved because he mastered it. One circumstance after another, he faced it down and created for himself a, a mask of stolidity that actually was both wise statesmanship and very high personal dignity. It, I mean, does it connect to uh, American Puritanism, which was always you, you know, very much about controlling yourself and the, the expressions of yourself? And that was really, America was built in large part on that Puritanism. Is that something that's broken down? And, and is, it, is it a result of the, the bottling up that it's now broken down so badly? Intriguing question. Puritanism did leave this legacy of quite explicit instruction from the pulpit, from the heads of families and so forth, that one must seek to control one's temper. And that ethic long survived the heyday of the Puritans. It became a a plank of American culture to be found even in, say, the uh, detective novels like Dashiell Hammett. You get figures who are capable of pulling back from the anger that they feel. Why did it fade out? And uh, I think that's a fairly complex question. You mentioned psychoanalysis and its contribution, but it also became a matter of the rise of social movements, uh, the civil rights movement and the women's movement early on seemed to contain within themselves an element of that old ethic of self-control. That as the 60s moved along, there were splinter groups and eventually counter-movements that urged anger. So among American blacks, we went from the civil rights movement to the idolization of Malcolm X and other more fringe figures. The women's movement turned angry as well. It went from demanding civil rights to uh, demanding a much more aggressive attacks on masculinity. And the shift of these things out of the realm of this personal experience into social movements seems to have preceded its entry into American politics. Well, politics is always raucous and there's elements of anger in it. But we didn't idolize anger. We still were looking for statesmen who could at least summon geniality and degree of generosity towards opponents. That's gone. We, we now have a, a much more pit bull style of politics here where we're 
willing to make uh, declarations on either side that lead to vitriolic anger. And I think we're seeing that play out with the apologetics of uh, civil disorder now. A few days ago, I did a piece on the uh, many college presidents in the country, perhaps even all of them, but certainly hundreds of them that have issued statements uh, that are very close to saying that the rioting is acceptable, that uh, the history of American racism is so dire that we must uh, make allowance that, uh, of course, people are going to rise up, uh, attempt to destroy Main Street and call for the, the central slogan of this seems to be to defund the police, close to call for anarchy. That's driven by sort of venom that uh, one man was allegedly killed by the police. It sort of looks like that on the video, although there are some questions about his condition. But out of that has come the destruction of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in property, many lives, and the descent of the country into a maelstrom of mutual hatred. There's a there's another phrase, not just defund the police, but another phrase that Black Lives Matter use a lot, which is that silence is violence, which again, it, it, it speaks to this idea that if you're not angry, you are, you are violent, you are, you are an oppressor. So anger is a sort of natural state and everything else is, is, is wrong. <laughs> this accusation of complicity, if you're not with us, you are giving aid and comfort to the vilest people in our midst is a really dangerous conception. And it is there, the silence equals complicity. Well, silence is violence. That seems to have some kinship with the movement among gays on silence equals death, which was a slogan back in the 1980s when the AIDS epidemic came along. The idea that one can't hold back one's opinion, take time to assess the facts and soberly consider things to do any of that is now seen as an act of violence, is a, a rhetorical excess of a, an astonishing level. That is, we are uh, simply from the start ruling out the possibility of the uh, person who wants to gather the facts and contemplate and, and consider what avenues might be best. So, uh, yes, you've, uh, you've nailed that. The Black Lives Matter movement, the, the sort of black rights movement, has become divorced from the, the Christianity that it came from and has become angrier as a result. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Uh, yes, I think that is a fair thing to say. Uh, Reverend Martin Luther King was a Christian, a fairly devout one. And after his death, that movement evolved into the hands of the much more secular left, although there is a... Uh, element there of the Muslim left as well, through the uh, faith of uh, Malcolm X. But I think it would be the best reading of the current Black Lives Matter movement and its uh, many offshoots, that it's essentially secular, though it does have a, an urge to almost deify anger. In the absence of a god, we invent gods. And the god in this case is uh, one of grievance and authenticity, those two things being very closely welded together. I'm grieving, that makes me authentic. 
I'm offended, so therefore I must be angry. Yeah. And we should, well, I suppose we shouldn't just keep to talking about the left on this because anger is a, is a bipartisan issue in America. I mean, uh, Trump thrives on anger in many ways, and Trumpists, although perhaps their anger is less less inclined to, to disorder, they nevertheless thrive on the idea that, that there's a sort of system crushing them down and that they have to break it. I think that's true. When I first started writing about anger some years ago, I noted that it was opportunistically available as a resource for both the left and right politically, although the left seemed to do it with a greater confidence that uh, this was a, uh, a right and proper approach to political, I don't think we can call it discourse, but political posturing perhaps. The right was indulging in it as well, uh, starting with the rise of uh, American talk radio in the 1980s. But it seemed to me for a long time to have a an element for the American right of regret, that they much wished that they didn't have to go there, but they were willing to if necessary. That regret has disappeared. I think that's much of what the uh, 2016 election of Donald Trump announced that uh, this was going to be a movement of the right that was no longer restrained by the sense that something was something important was lost by resorting to vituperation and to uh, the demonization of one's opponents. So there we are. It's also something that's that's been part of sports is is a large uh, factor in this. I always think because I remember when I was young, McEnroe coming to Wimbledon and losing his temper, and it was a sort of major talking point in Britain that this American had behaved in this way, and it was appalling, and what we're we going to do about it. And then very within a matter of years, sort of ostentatious displays of anger in sport became accepted and even encouraged as a sign that they were passionate or that it was a somebody who cared. And it was actually a form of entertainment. It became part of the sport. Well, there were some sports that were always more rough and tumble than others. What happened in tennis was uh, outstanding because tennis was a sport with a fairly uh, demanding code of civility on the court towards the umpires. Uh, that was a breakthrough moment, I agree, when we started finding racket tossing and screaming at the refs as a uh, as a part of the game and it quickly spread into every other area of sport really there was a, uh, a famous downhill skier who was famous as much for his bad manners as for his displays of peak towards other people in the sport but in football american football the readiness of people to do end zone dances and spikes and things like that was uh, something that at first alarmed people and then became pretty much accepted. We are, I think the link that I would make here is that we had already begun to see ostentatious displays of anger as entertaining. So there's, there's my anger, but there's also the guy over there who is so good at expressing anger look at the marvelous way he puts down his girlfriend or the, the waiter or somebody like that. Look at the, uh, the contempt that he's able to summon over the most trivial things. That's great. And 
in fact, we began to see these highly performative forms of anger make their way into television and movies, mass entertainment, the rise of a style of acting which uh, treated outrageous eruptions of anger as the the height of uh, dramatic ability, I think became a thing. And we're now so used to it that we've, again, habituated it to the level where it's hard to notice now, except if we encounter a character who isn't angry, and then we wonder what pathology he's hiding. Making anger entertainment as it happens, that was a, a good part of how Donald Trump arose to uh, prominence in America. He had a, a very famous uh, public fight with uh, Rosie O'Donnell in which they traded insults at each other publicly for matters of months. This was part of his rise to national prominence. And uh, I would gather as during that period, uh, he learned the, the tricks of the trade. This is, this is how you display anger. This is how you demean people who are your opponents and uh, do it in a manner that is going to win applause from others, that that audience that sees you as superb at the quality of the uh, put down. Yeah, I mean, social media, which which Trump is very engaged in, obviously, it, it, it only encourages anger, it seems to me. And it doesn't just encourage you to be angry, it encourages you to make others angry. So it's a sort of it's a it's an anger tournament uh, every day on Twitter. There's a there's the person that your remark is addressed to or ostensibly to, but then there's the the real audience is uh, all those people who you were hoping to excite, and you might want to excite them by asking them to uh, echo your sentiments, or you might be just as well satisfied if you've trolled them and gotten them angry at you, because uh, there is a a peculiar psychology to this in which uh, some people welcome the, uh, the flood of anger against them. In my role at the National Association of Scholars, I'm frequently called on to defend academics who have gotten in trouble with their students or their institutions for having tweeted out something that they had to know was going to excite people against them. As it happens, I have to defend their academic freedom to say such things, and I do defend that. But at the same time, I'm also thinking, what in the world has gotten into you that you would go out of your way to present to as broad a public as possible, not only opinions that you know will be disagreed with, but you will phrase them in a manner calculated to elicit the strongest negative reaction possible. And then you sit back and wait for what's going to happen and take satisfaction in your ability to uh, incite a mob against you, presumably with the calculus that if there's a mob against you, there's another mob out there somewhere that is going to come rushing to your defense. It's a game, a, a sort of game in which you stir people up and deploy them against each other. And perhaps you then sit back and think you're a general on the hillside watching the armies slaughter one another. Does it tie into victimhood in the sense that if you can make yourself a victim by inviting enough anger, then you can summon up another level of anger in response? I, I think that's a, the meta level of this, yes. The currency of victimhood is very important, and it's a moral currency. To be a victim is to have been 
awarded a, a sense of historical vindication that you, your people, whoever, whatever identity group that you've uh, associated yourself with has long suffered. And now you are channeling that suffering and distilling it into anger against me right now. That I should be seen by uh, the people on my side as a, a champion. So the, the more I can be uh, a victim of slurs and anger expressed on one side, the more I can be seen as a hero on the other. And do you think it's um, the cycle can, can be broken? Do you think we're going to just see America getting angrier and angrier and burning itself down more and more? Or, or do these things dwindle out? Well, there's sort of the small question and the large question in the way you put that. The current round of rioting and civil disorder will quiet down, uh, whether by forceful action of the public authorities or by the exhaustion of the rioters. Uh, we don't yet know, probably a little bit of both. The, the bigger picture, are we going to escape the, the cycle of extreme polarization with its acting out of uh, differences in the form of an ever-escalating war of words. Well, uh, the only way I see out of that really is when one side or the other, or perhaps both, so spectacularly overstep that uh, they lose credibility. I wonder if the movement calling for defunding the police is not such an overstep on the part of the left. I wonder if Trump's threat to use military force to regain control of the cities might not be that overstepping on the right. Defund the police is an idea that is now being walked back a bit. They're saying, oh, we don't really mean uh, defund the police. We mean simply redeploying some of the resources. Well, that's not what they said, and that's not how the term is meant to be taken. Likewise, when Trump threatens uh, military intervention on domestic soil, uh, he's mostly their bluster. We haven't really seen, we haven't seen this yet at all. We have uh, only a rhetorical threat on that side. But I would say the loser in this game is the one that stakes a position so extreme that the public turns to it in revulsion. It's a bit hard to know just when that will happen. I've thrown out two candidates for it. If it were to happen, we might begin to see some degree of realization that the indulgence in uh, what I call new anger, this self, self-approving form of anger that we have, could have run its day. It's uh, something that eats away at the foundation of any kind of civilized society. Now, I talk about this as uh, something that's going on in America, because it's certainly going on here, but I'm, I'm not blind to the fact that it's much more widespread than that. This is a civilizational disorder, and wherever uh, Western civilization has a claim on uh, a description of what transpires in society, these dynamics are there to some degree. Well, we could see it spreading in London at the moment and in Belgium yesterday too. I mean, that to me is because I think we're, we're kind of downstream from America on that. We're, we're, we're learning American habits. 
Do you think that's right? Well, I'm, I will take refuge from my lack of knowledge of the situation on the ground there. In America, we have made this into a racial division. And I am phrasing that carefully. I don't believe that at its root, it is a racial thing. But the racial narrative of slavery and its aftermath have been set up as the best way of making this seem to some degree rational. Almost a year ago, the New York Times published a standalone issue of its Sunday magazine in which it announced the 1619 Project. The 1619 Project, named after the supposed arrival in 1619 in Jamestown of the first American slaves. This project filled up 100 pages of the newspaper plus another supplement and has been rolled out as a curriculum in uh, K-12 schools across the country. What that's about was a claim that America was from the beginning, always has been, and still is a slaveocracy. So it was an attempt to elevate racial resentment to a new intense level of aggravation of America's historical wounds. It doesn't make a great deal of sense if one is looking at this through some dispassionate sociological idea that uh, Americans who are black, whether they're descended from slaves or more recent immigrants, have done really well in America. Do they still face discrimination in some places? Yes. Are there acts of police violence against them in some places? Yes. But all of that kind of dissolves. The closer you look at it, the less sense that it makes. What does make sense here is that the cultural and political polarization of the last generation has come to the fore in a, a kind of collective self-loathing. Americans have been taught that uh, our nation is from the start a, a terrible, oppressive place that needs to be simply torn down entirely. Uh, our schools emphasize the importance of uh, multiculturalism, by which they mean something that's transnational in character. We have a strong movement that opposes the, uh, the borders of the United States. So there's something about a collective identity of the nation that is in question here. And it has uh, divided between a, a side that views America as illegitimate and oppressive in its very nature and a side that has become much more fervently nationalistic than, than it was before. So I, I think it's that division rather than the racial one that can probably be seen as having stronger counterparts uh, in Europe and, and England. There is a division between in England between those who uphold the idea of England being a, a real nation with its own traditions to be defended and others who wish to pursue a more cosmopolitan view of what uh, the English should be. That's quite parallel to what's going on in the US. And lastly, if I may ask a, uh, I suppose, slightly personal question, feel free to ignore it or, or not answer it. Having written so much about so much about anger and the new anger, as you call it, do, do you find yourself getting angry about it? Sometimes, yes, I, I do. I live in uh, New York City. I work in Midtown Manhattan. The other day, I made a little photo tour of my the neighborhood where my office is. 
which is uh, near where there are department stores and many high-end luxury goods stores, all of which are boarded up and looted. When I walk the streets there, uh, they're mostly deserted except for uh, the police standing around on corners, keeping a watchful eye on things. That's during daylight hours. It's heartbreaking to see all the small businesses that have been driven under, not by the riots in this case, but by the decision to shut down the country in its entirety. We haven't touched on the uh, COVID-19 epidemic or its, its overreaction on the part of the public, but that is very directly part of what has happened with the riots as well. So we have two crises that have dovetailed. One of them has to do with an incompetent uh, reaction on the part of our public authorities to what to do about a public health epidemic and uh, a reaction that has done grave damage to the economy, put millions of people out of work and destroyed businesses, and then flowing into this uh, pent-up rage that we saw enacted by protesters, black and white, who have taken to further violent destruction of property. Do I get angry at that? Very much so. Uh, how does my anger come out? Well, when I step outside my uh, apartment in New York and I'm confronted by somebody who's uh, telling me to wear a face mask in public, when there is absolutely no evidence that this virus is transmitted publicly by people at a distance, I get angry at that. And uh, I sneer back at the people who are sneering at me. But apart from that sort of personal element of disgust with the sheep-like behavior of people who are following rules that make no sense, I would say there is this much more heartfelt feeling that our elected public leaders here in New York City and New York State nationally have been so utterly incompetent in addressing the crises that have come along that stirs up an anger in me. But my anger, I think I would say, this is maybe a point of pride. I, I try not to engage in a savage denunciation of other people. I'm willing to call them out for faults, but I'm not looking to play the anger game. Anger is an emotion I have to deal with, not something I want to revel in. Well, on that very sober and sane note, we will end it. Thank you very much, Peter, for joining us. And uh, please come on the podcast again. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. 